0: This is Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus, and we are at increment number 43, here a little, there a little, line upon line, this is increment or line 43, dia to pathema to thanatu, is the Greek phrase that we will be homing in on. And I'm encouraged once in a while to remind our Tetelestai Church or Phalanx that you still have opportunity to give to this ministry if that's your wish and that's your will and that's your intent. I don't do this very often because I believe that God is our source. He has been our generous source for... 41 years plus, keeping this ministry going, keeping it afloat. And yet he's often chosen to be generous through his people, through the generosity of givers, because he chooses to bless givers and to extend his grace to them so that they have more grace than what they need in life, for everything in life, as second corinthians nine eight says so i 'm encouraged once in a while to remind people of the opportunity to give so as not to prevent them from a blessing, whether you give or not is up to you it 's up to you between you and the Lord, and i'm absolutely confident that God is the source for our ministry and I'm also very grateful for the generosity of his people, of many of you, over the course of these years. And so today, Father, we thank you for your great kindness and generosity that you showed us in Christ Jesus. And may we explore just exactly what that grace and that generosity has meant and what it resulted in for us and what it results in within us, we ask this in Christ's name, amen influenced by the what I consider to be a fairly excellent English translation, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, I was influenced by it because it seems to have correctly articulated the logical order of clauses in hebrews two nine and so I've modified my original translation of Hebrews 2.9 in order to express what I think is more accurately the sense of the text here. And I think the Holman Christian Standard Bible is to be congratulated in this. Here in this verse, the weight falls on the suffering of the Son of Man, who is suddenly revealed by the name of Jesus. In Hebrews 1.3, the writer proclaims that the Son made purification for sins, but he didn't explain just what that act required of the Son. Here he does. In fact, here and throughout much of this sermon that we call Hebrews, he does in fact show what was required by the Son to make purification for sins and so we have Hebrews 2 and I want to pick up with 8b to give us some continuity uh, and flow of this passage in 2nd chapter 2 8b that is now we do not yet see everything subjected to him but we see Jesus and that's the phrase or the declaration upon which I've Place this whole series, but we see Jesus who was, and we should have quotes around this next phrase, made inferior to the angels for a little while. Close quote. So that by the grace of God, please note this phrase, by the grace of God, because the the next time we meet here, Lord willing, we may deal with a variant of the translation here. By the grace of God, He would taste death for everyone. And then we have the the quoted phrase, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So let me read 2.8b through 2.9 once again. Now we do not yet see everything subjected to him, but we see Jesus who was made inferior to the angels for a little while, so that by the grace of God he would taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. This P.T., I call him P.T., short for Pastor Theologian, shows that the Son of Man, of Psalm 8, under whose feet God has placed everything, that son of man is Jesus. Jesus is the one who was made inferior to the angels for a little while. Now what's striking and surprising here if you were to not know anything of the Bible and simply read Hebrews what would this would be quite a surprising and shocking addition here. What's striking and surprising here? is that the precise purpose of his being made lower than the angels was in order to taste death for everyone. It was for that very purpose and for that singular and exclusive purpose. To taste death for everyone. And that means all of humanity in all of humanity's time. So when the PT says, we see Jesus, he means we see our Lord Jesus crowned with glory and honor, just as the Son of Man is portrayed that way in Psalm 8. But Jesus is crowned with glory and honor for a specific reason, not mentioned in Psalm 8. It is precisely because Of the suffering of death. The suffering of death is what was required of the Son to make purification for sins. The experience of death for everyone was required of the Son in making purification of all the sins of all the world of all humanity in all of its times. Hebrews two eight B through nine is the PT's closing comment on the Septuagint of Psalm eight five through seven. He is still dealing with the topic of angels here, as he was at the closing comment after the cluster of quotations ending with this Psalm 1101 or LXX one hundred nine one. Quotation in Hebrews one thirteen. In his closing comment in one fourteen, he reveals that in this world, all the angels are sent by God to support the human heirs of salvation, to be for a support for them. So already, the angels are ministering to those who are in solidarity with the human and divine Son of God. In Hebrews 2.9, Jesus is disclosed to have been temporarily relegated to a position inferior to angels for the precise purpose of suffering death. His completion or his perfection in solidarity with humankind could not be completed until he experienced death for all of humankind. His exaltation to a place higher than all the angels and his inheritance of a name that is above all names, including all the names of all the angels, is expressly revealed to be the result of his humiliation. And this is extraordinarily important. His exaltation to the right hand of the majesty in the heavens is directly attributable to his humiliation. It's a result of, or we could say a reward for, his humiliation. A humiliation at the peak of which he suffered death And in that suffering, he tasted death. That doesn't just mean to sample it, but to experience death for everyone. At this critical point in Hebrews, we're apprised of Jesus' universally saving significance. That which in previous series I have called USSJC the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. And we are also reminded of the universal efficacy of his death, or that which we have called in previous series, the universal impact of the cross of Christ, the acronym UICC. Such a great salvation spoken of by the P.T. in Hebrews 2.3, came about through the suffering of the Son of Man, that is, Jesus. Now we're on the path to answer the twofold question that we asked several increments ago. I know probably increment 13 it was asked. Why did the eternal Son of God have to be perfected. Was it because Jesus wasn't perfect? And why through suffering? The subject of the Son is dealt with all the way from Hebrews one one to two eight, but now comes the subject of the suffering. Of the son and of his experience of death now looming up in my mind as I was considering these verses was Matthew 16 21 Jesus own words to his disciples at Caesarea Philippi he said it says the scripture says from then on Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things please notice that he must suffer many things we're going to find out in Hebrews 2:10 that he must suffer because that is precisely how he comes into perfection or complete solidarity with humankind he must suffer many things from the elders Chief priests and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. And also Jesus' words in Matthew 20, in verse 18b, in which he says, The Son of Man will be given into the hands of the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. I think now we can extract certain bold declarations from our exegesis or exposition of Hebrews 2.9. One, Jesus is, is the Son of Man whom God visits with salvation. Psalm 8.4 or Septuagint 8.5. Second, Jesus is the Son of Man under whose feet God has placed everything. Psalm 8.6 Septuagint seven. Everything in future worlds. Future world is already present to Jesus Christ and he to future world. Hebrews 2.5, Hebrews 1.6, we've already dealt with that subject. Third point, Jesus was made to be inferior to the angels for a short time. Psalm 8.5a, or the Septuagint six a for the express purpose of experiencing death for everyone. Now, you might ask the question, well, if he experienced death for everyone, why does everyone die? Well, I'll explain. Fourth point, Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor. Remember, we are in a corona or crown series, a coronation series within our Hebrew series. And this is the 32nd increment of that, I believe. Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor in fulfillment of Psalm 8.5, Septuagint 8.6b, precisely because he is crowned with glory and honor precisely because of the suffering of death during which he experienced death for everyone. So we... Here we are at a climactic point, a peak point of our Corona series within Hebrews. Now, I've often made the point that death is what Paul called the wages of sin in Romans 6.23. And that's extremely important for our interpretation. Death is the wages of sin. It's the paycheck that you get from sin for this reason we can say that Jesus experienced the wages of sin for everyone during his suffering of death the fact that we die physically does not mean that we are bearing the wages of sin Jesus bore the wages of sin for all humankind. Now the truth encapsulated in Hebrews 2.9 is spilled out over the vast section of Hebrews which deals with Jesus' expiational death, a death by which he put away sin by the offering of himself, an event that was foreshadowed by the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament offered under the Levitical order. Now, if we correlate Hebrews 2, 8, and 9 with Philippians 2, 8, and 9, and we should, if we correlate or even conflate Hebrews 2, 8, and 9 with Philippians 2, 8, and 9, the notion of the exaltation of Jesus, the Son of God, is seen very clearly to be an explicit result of his humiliation. And it comes more sharply into focus by a comparison of Philippians 2, 8 and 9 with Hebrews 2, 8 and 9. Furthermore, the juxtaposition of these two passages brings in the notion of the son's obedience to the extent of the death of the cross in Philippians 2 8. Philippians 2 9 then goes on to say, therefore, that is, for this reason, God exalted him. For this reason, God exalted him. For what reason? Because of his obedience to the extent of death. On the cross. The death of the cross. Philippians 2.8. So in their totality. Philippians 2.8 and 9. Reads this way. He humbled himself. Becoming obedient. To the point of death. Then there should be a long hyphen. And this is Paul putting in his emphasis. The death. Of the cross. For this reason, and this is the what we call the inferential conjunction dio dio, which begins Philippians two nine. It means for this reason, or because of this, on account of this, God raised him to the highest height, and gave to him the name above all names. Do you see how? a conflation or a juxtaposition of Philippians 2, eight and 9 with Hebrews 2, eight and 9 is instructive and beneficial. I think so. There never has been, nor will there ever be a self-humbling like that of the Son of God. There never has been Nor will there ever be a divine act of exaltation like that of God's exaltation of Jesus. This is first of all because the Son is, always was, and always will be God. Philippians 2 6 says, though he was in the very form, morphe means the very essence of divinity or deity, he didn't consider equality with God or with divinity as something to be grasped and held on to. Hebrews 5 8 complements this statement by saying, Though he was the son, meaning the eternal son of God, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. That means by assuming a human nature and by, as we could say, adding a human nature to his divine nature, he could demonstrate obedience through suffering. And he did so. He fulfilled a divine mission with extraordinary success. Hebrews 5.8 then complements Philippians 2.6 by saying, though he was the eternal son, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. So to compare the self-sacrifice of any human person to that of the Son of God and to try to equate it misses the point by infinity that the Son of God put aside the privileges and the prerogatives that he had as God in order to assume a human nature and then to take on the obedience of a slave For the sake of the human race. I wonder if we should condemn or cancel Jesus for having been eternally begotten with the privilege of being God. Eternally God. Should we condemn him or cancel him out because of his privilege? Or how about this one? I wonder if we should condemn him for relinquishing his privilege and his prerogatives. Without relinquishing his divinity, he couldn't. He can't be anyone other than who he is, but he can assume a human nature. Today, there is a movement to condemn human beings for what they are. That is a demonic movement, a diabolical strategy. To weaken in the wrong way people so that they can be compliant and submissive to a totalitarian ideology. There is a most egregious evil afoot in our own times. There is an agenda hidden. Demonic in its origin. To impose the evil of guilt on people for just being who they are. And it's in order to take power over them. This is the essence of the strategy of the God of this age, as he's called in 2 Corinthians 4, 3, and 4. He said to blind the minds of the non-believing so that the light of the gospel of the glory of the Christ does not shine into them. It is a strategy that has been adopted by Marxist organizations, specifically Marxist and specifically communist. you were so almost demonized to the point of cancellation, even in the 1950s, to believe that there was such a threat as communism or Marxism. But in fact, that has been a threat to our national unity and to our national freedom then. And is still much more so now. I remember the 60s when this Marxist agenda reared its ugly head. And then receded only to show up again this time with a lot more useful idiots and deceived people following its dictates. It's because people have rejected the gospel or accepted a distorted gospel of a judgmental and angry God rather than a God of benevolence and beneficence and extraordinary grace and kindness. So this strategy of the God of this age has been adopted by Marxist organizations to create chaos in free societies and then to offer to lead the society Out of that chaos by submission to their ideology which ultimately is a kind of communistic socialism and this is the antithesis of the gospel of God about his son by which real guilt for real sins is washed away and human beings are made a new creation The strategy of the ruler of this age who, thank God, has been deposed by Christ through the cross but is still running amok in the world. This strategy of the ruler of this evil age will ultimately fail and fail catastrophically. You can be assured of that, take comfort from that. But for now, the strategy of the evil one who is still active, according to Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, and his wiles and devices are still being utilized. The strategy of the evil one seems to be effective. Depends on what you're looking at, though. And its human minions seem to be triumphant, celebratory. However, as Paul predicts, like Janice and Jambres who opposed Moses, these useful idiots of Satan quote, won't get very far, for their stupidity will become plain to all. That's Second Timothy, three eight to nine. Useful idiots is a term I quote from Lenin, L e n i n, one of the first of the Bolshevik communist revolutionaries, who use the term useful idiots. He doesn't care about the people or the lives of the people that he uses to bring about his agenda. He calls them useful idiots. Christians, some of whom become useful idiots, but Christians should not be ignorant of the designs of the invisible adversary who is referred to in the scripture by the name Satana, or Satan, which simply means the adversary, the slanderer. 2 Corinthians 2.11 The adversary, like the thief, comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. John 10.10 The adversary is active in our times on an ideological level. He promotes an ideology to stir up anger in one group in order to cause a reaction on the part of another group so that he can destroy a nation and bring it into submission a totalitarian submissiveness in jesus however on the other extreme the principle of matthew 23:12 is eminently and representatively fulfilled He said, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It is not Christ, but the spirit of Antichrist who fulfills the first half of that saying, which says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Now, here's a history lesson for you. Here's a history lesson. Upon these two principles all of human history is determined Matthew 23:12 He who exalts himself shall be humbled he who humbles himself shall be exalted Upon these two principles all of human history is determined What is currently at stake in our time is not whether one political party Or politician succeeds or fails. Human history is not about one ideology or another taking precedence over others. Human history is about those who exalt themselves and are humbled and those who humble themselves and are exalted. In the middle of all of human history And determinative of all of history in the final analysis is the one, namely Jesus of Nazareth, the eternal Son of God, who humbled himself and was exalted. Exalted by God. In the present crises that are gripping our nation and the world. What is at stake is not what human cause will prevail and what human cause will fail or succeed. Or even what culture emerges and what culture recedes as a result of what's going on. What is at issue and what will take place is that those who are exalting themselves at the present will be humbled in the future. If not the near, then certainly the what we might call the far future. Barring, of course, a change of mind on their part and a change of disposition called repentance. Repentance. What is at issue and what will take place is that those who, in imitation of Jesus, humble themselves and will be exalted. If not in the near, fu- near, then certainly in the far future. But then again, the future, near or far, isn't really far from any one of us right now. Neither is future world very far. In fact, we have one foot there and another foot in this world. The height of the exaltation of Jesus, the Son of Man, is matched by the depth of the Son of God's self-humiliation. I'll say that again because it almost resembles a principle. (laughs) The height of the exaltation of Jesus, the Son of Man, is matched by the depth of the Son of God's self-humiliation. Both the depth of Jesus' self-humiliation and the height of his divine exaltation are incomprehensible. The depth and the, the height, this depth of his humiliation and this height of his exaltation are actually the vertical dimensions of a love that passes knowledge. Just as the horizontal dimensions called the width and the breadth combine to be the horizon of that love, a universal horizon. The dimensions of the love of Christ surpass any human way of knowing. Ephesians 3.19 So the dimensions of the love of Christ that surpass any human way of knowing, and I hope you remember last message, can only be grasped by an act of vertical causation in which the Father and the Spirit cause us to comprehend those dimensions together with all the saints. Ephesians 3.18 Only by an act of vertical causation can we see Jesus. And only by an act of vertical causality can the incomprehensible be comprehended. When the infinite dimensions of the love of God called the love of Christ in Ephesians 3.19 when they are grasped comprehended apprehended then the Saints are filled up with all the fullness of God then their cup overflows to positively impact their generation and generations to follow those who are filled up with all the fullness of God by grasping the incomprehensible love of Christ are those whose cup is full and overflows to those of their generation and generations to come. My cup overflows is the, one of the declarations, of course, of the famous shepherd, Psalm 23. This fullness of God fills all of humanity. It's when Christ, who is the fullness of God, is formed in us. This fullness of God fills all of humanity completely and in a measureless way in what is known as the telos, T-E-L-O-S, the end or the goal of history. And that's when God will be all in all. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty eight. But it happens in a meaningful measure, even now, in those who keep his word. In 1 John 2.5, For in those who keep his word, the love of God is perfected. Seeing Jesus, therefore, is comprehending the incomprehensible love of God. It is what Karl Barth might call an impossible possibility. He used this intriguing phrase several times in his commentary to the Romans. I read Barth's commentary to the Epistle of Paul to the Romans in preparing for the Romans series. And I I think it was there along with his church dogmatics where he often used the phrase, an intriguing phrase, an impossible possibility. Seeing Jesus... is comprehending the incomprehensible love of God. When we do see him in the beatific vision, we will become like him, for we will see him as he is. We'll have to be like him to comprehend fully his love. This juxtaposition of passages is important for other reasons, not the least of which is the correspondence, listen carefully, stay with me, The correspondence of the self-humbling of Christ with his obedience. The correspondence of his self-humbling with his obedience. The obedience of Christ is an extraordinarily vital theme throughout Paul, as well as in Hebrews. As we discovered in our recent study of the Doctrine of the Mystery... The sun was made lower than the angels for a little while. Now, I translate it that way because I take the temporal interpretation of braku, B-R-A-C-H-U, braku, to mean a little while rather than a little lower. I take it to mean a little while over the spatial or positional interpretation. The spatial interpretation, if you want to call it that, Would read, He was made a little lower than the angels. The temporal, which I take to be the correct, He was made lower than the angels for a little while. Any trial and affliction that we pass through is for a little while. It doesn't seem like it, but it is for a little while. It's called a light affliction, which is but for a moment. And that's why, as we go through our light affliction, which is only for a moment, we focus in not on the temporal and the evanescent, the passing and the transient, but upon the everlasting and the eternal things. We see Jesus. Now, to say that he was made lower than the angels for a little while is not to say that the son had no say in his own humiliation. On the contrary, Philippians 2.8 says, he humbled himself. So the father and the son, as always, are one. They are in solidarity in this humiliation. The father made the son lower than the angels, we could say. But the Son humbled himself, too. He humbled himself. He became obedient to the radical extent, I used to call it the nth degree, because there's no measure of the degree of his obedience, except called the extent of the death of the cross, which is a measureless extent. He became obedient to the Radical extent of the death of the cross. That doesn't just mean death by crucifixion. Not at all. Yes, he was crucified, and that's a death of unspeakable brutality, disgrace, and horror. But the death of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is a unique death In a unique cross in which he tasted to the dregs, not just sampled, but tasted and drank to the dregs the wages of sin for all of humankind. That's the death that Jesus and nobody else died. And that's the death of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and no other cross. If we conflate Hebrews 2.9 with, with Philippians 2.8, let's conflate Hebrews 2.9 with Philippians 2.8, we get hit right between the eyes with the insight that this was not just any crucifixion, not merely one of the many of hundreds of thousands of brutal crucifixions that were carried out by the bestial power of Rome. No, it was the death of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in which the Son of God experienced the bitterness of the wages of sin for every human being over the course of all time. I despise every theological system that belittles the depth of the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. Whether they're universalist or not makes no difference to me. You minimalize the suffering or marginalize the sufferings of Jesus Christ, you're a big loser with me and possibly even a useful idiot of Satan. Even though you may say and think you're so gracious in saying, eventually... After many, many ages pass, everyone will be saved after they go through some kind of purgatorial purification. If that's what you mean by universalism, I ain't no universalist. What is being spoken of here, then, is not any cross, or any horizontal act of crucifixion. I say horizontal act of crucifixion in which men crucify men or women. It is a combination of the vertical and horizontal act. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is a combination of a vertical and a horizontal act and event called the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ distinct from all other crosses. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is another way of saying the death of Jesus Christ, by which he endured the horrible, let's call it again, incomprehensible bitterness of the wages that sin pays all of its doers. This is the obedience that Jesus learned, or we could even say expressed or demonstrated through suffering in the days of his flesh. Though he was the eternal son, and of course, perfect. No one can say Jesus wasn't perfect in the sense of his moral, ethical, spiritual uprightness. To say so reveals an ignorance. And sometimes ignorance is coupled with arrogance. So when Jesus is said to be perfected, it isn't because he wasn't perfect and sinless. It means something else. That's where we're going to answer that. So this is what Paul spoke of as the remarkable act of obedience by which the many, which he equates with all of humanity, would be made righteous. Romans 5.19 compared with Romans 5.18. There's a juxtaposition there in 5.18, all humanity and the many. The many equals the all, the all equals the many. In other words, Jesus Christ's obedience in Romans, resulted in the many being made righteous. The many being all of humanity, just as all of humanity were made or constituted sinners by their association with the single inclusive representative named Adam. So this is what Paul meant when he spoke of a remarkable act of obedience, a representational act of obedience by which the many, that is all of humanity, would be made righteous. Indeed, in fact, in another passage in which they slash we would be made the very righteousness of God in solidarity with him, with Christ. That's why I say Jesus' obedience was his rigorous and relentless compliance with the universally saving intention of God the Father, which in turn is the universally saving intent of the triune God, that being the Father, who is called the God of all grace, First Peter 5.10, and the God of truth, Psalm 31.5, Septuagint 30 and verse 6, The Son, who is called full of grace and truth, in John one fourteen, and the Spirit, who is called the Spirit of grace, in Hebrews 10.29, and the Spirit of truth, in John 14.17. The triune God are united, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the triune God, the three persons of the one divine Godhead, are united in their intention of universal salvation. Now, speaking of grace, and specifically of the grace of God, Hebrews 2.9 is usually translated, and look there again, Hebrews 2.9, translated that Jesus, by the grace of God, kariti theu, experienced death. By the grace of God, Jesus experienced death, the wages of sin, for everyone, by the grace of God. This, of course, is reminiscent of John 3.16, which says God loved the world so much that he gave his only eternally generated son. God gave. That's the grace of God. But the son gave Two, He gave himself for me. He loved me and gave himself for me. And the life that I now live in the flesh I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. That's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 13:13 13, 13 to 14. He loved us and gave himself for us to be the expiation of our sins. This is the grace that the last verse of the Bible pronounces on all, not only all of humanity, but all of creation in all of its times, diachronically we say, in Revelation twenty two twenty one. Now, I say Hebrews 2, 9 is usually translated by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death, etc., Next time, we might have something to say about that and we might look at a variation of translation of by the grace of God that I think you may find very intriguing, very instructive, and very insightful. So, Father, we thank you for another opportunity to gaze into the perfect or the perfected Torah of freedom. Grant us the grace to remain free in a time when great forces are in action to make people cow into submissiveness in the wrong sense, into slavery, to guilt, and to fear. Grant us the grace to stand fast in the freedom wherewith Christ has made us free. And to recognize that guilt has been purified by the blood of Christ. Washing away from us all the necessity of doing dead works. Grant us the grace, Father, to walk in liberty and to walk in freedom. And the grace to continue in your word. For if we continue in the word of Jesus Christ, then we are his disciples in deed and in truth. And the truth that is embodied in Jesus will make us free. And we will be free indeed because we will come to know the Son and see Jesus fulfilling the incomprehensible truth of knowing him. Father, make this impossible possibility a reality in all those who hear and heard today's message. I ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen.